My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. In recent years, we have become more knowledgeable about the star-making machine, how it works, and who deserves credit for the looks that go global in the media, social and otherwise. Jay-Z, Missy Elliott, and Sean Puff Daddy Combs get all the glory, but often making magic in the background is a stylist with a vision that brings the look to life. My guest today, June Ambrose, is one of those magic makers. Caribbean-born, Bronx-raised, she is responsible for some of hip-hop's most signature looks. Jay-Z shirtless in a green Dries Van Noten suit in the apeshit video, Missy Elliott's puffy black suit in the rain super-duper fly, and Naz in a pink suit and white shoes are just some of the iconic looks she stage-managed. The marriage of hip-hop and couture is taken for granted today, but it wasn't so long ago when the fashion houses wanted nothing to do with the culture. Times have indeed changed with Cardi B in a Balenciaga ad and ASAP Rocky, the face of Dior. Just two examples of the seismic shift. June Ambrose has seen it all and enjoyed the ride all the way to becoming the creative director of Puma, poised to take her legacy into the world of the new normal. Welcome, June Ambrose. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm great, thank you. So a lot's happened in the last year. Do you think we're just going to pick up where we left off, for example, luxury versus loungewear, or where do you see things going now? Wow, I wish it was as easy as picking up where we left off, but I think the world has been so cosmically shifted, whether it's the pandemic or social injustice really being brought to the forefront. I think everyone is looking at the way they consume things now, especially consumers, I think, yes, luxury brands will start to look at leisure wear in a different way. I think they'll make them more of a premium priority within the company. But, you know, retail is is different. I live here in New York City. I know our city's been tremendously affected as it relates to retail stores and restaurants being lost due to what happened last year. I don't know if we'll just pick up where we left off. I think we'll be different. We'll be better. I think we're more energized and charged. I know I feel more creatively charged this year than I have in a really long time. Yeah, I've been wondering, will people still want fashion in the way that things were going before all of that? Yesterday, I was in Boston, in fact, walking on Newberry Street, which is sort of the the hip street down there. Mm -hmm, And I was surprised to see all these girls walking around with their shopping bags. There was a sale at Zara and there was a line and it was like 12 degrees out there. I guess fashion still matters. Great. I'm really happy to hear that (laughs) because obviously the more people are shopping and going about their life as as usual is better for everybody. So that's great news. And this is definitely the best sales time for shoppers because everything is marked down. People are at 70% markdown. So it's really, I'm glad that people are out shopping. Are you buying? I do more online shopping than anything, but I mean, I've been in quarantine for so long. I haven't really been doing much fashion shopping, to be honest. What I have done really is 
edited my closet, reinvented. I look at things about what's needed and what's not needed, what's excessive, really minimized a lot, simplified a lot in my life, which was kind of great. I think I needed it. In your mind's eye now, when you think ahead to that day when we're going to have some fabulous event that you want to really show what you got, do you have any ideas what you would be wearing or how would you like to present yourself at that time? You know, I got to tell you, even before the pandemic, I was doing this like really kind of like leisure. I was like, how do I remix a pair of sweats? How do I remix jeans? I was doing like this high fashion grunge kind of thing. So I look forward to putting on a six inch pair of heels and really (laughs) wearing something that's couture and sparkly and over the top and feathered and just avant-garde. That's what I'm saying. I've literally lived my life fully in lounge wear, leisure wear and athletic wear. I do think athletic and leisure wear will also be more acceptable in the workplace and in places that you wouldn't usually see it. I think that even, you know, moms dropping their kids off to school, they'll be fabulous in a pair of leggings. They'll mix that with like an over-the-top coat for a coat with a pair of leggings or something like that. So I think people are going to want to mix comfort and fashion. Have you been checking out the fashion shows at all that have been going on? I have. Do you think any of the designers have it right or what's your feeling? Well, what's really fun is that designers are using their imagination. Virgil just sent down some really avant-garde Wizard of Oz kind of pieces down the Louis Vuitton runway. I think designers, in terms of ready-to-wear, will give us the essentials. Leisure is going to really hold a nice position within the retail marketplace. But I think on the runway, they're just going for it. You know, they're creating all these really fabulous stories. It's really nice to see how everyone's approaching luxury and leisure. And in your world, looking for and finding inspiration, which we all do, what is it that you look for or look at? Is it music? Is it art? Is it more fashion? When I'm in a creative place or just in life in general? In life in general. What do you like to do more than anything? Is it movies, binging on Netflix or what? I like a good movie. I am a Netflix binger. (laughs) I love cooking. That's also like a great relaxing outlet, playing around with still life. I love styling still life. Uh, still life as in mannequins or? No, like a, like a plate, you know. Or, oh, I see. Or like beauty or, or, or like a candle, just really having fun with playing with still life and imagining it. Floral arrangements. I look for things that relax me and inspire me. Like I like peonies and that color palette of a peonies may inspire a design that I may be working on. And I'm just always looking, and I just love retro movies. I love happy places. So wherever I can find a little joy, I love a romantic comedy. Yeah, well, Turner Classics movies, TCM, is is really a cult thing. And I'm definitely a part of that cult. Love those old movies, the black and whites with everyone dressing up for everything. Suits and hats. Oh, (laughs) so refreshing. I'd love to know how you became this person that you are today. Well, I was always a very precocious child. (laughs) The beauty in the way I was raised, I was raised in a single parent home and my mom worked all the time as my sister, my mom and myself. And we were latchkey kids. So we came from school, we went home and we had to really use our imagination behind closed doors. And I remember using what I had, elements of what was available to me. And I wanted to 
design clothes for my dolls and I wanted to have a, a retail store and I had to create all of that environment within the confines of my fire escape. That was like my patio growing up in the Bronx. And I, I remember cutting up curtains, my grandma's curtains and designing Barbie doll dresses and gowns. And I remember creating pocketbooks out of crepe paper. And it's kind of like if you take all of the technology away from your kids and you tell them to get creative, the art form is so different. I miss going to the library and stuff like that. But growing up, I used to always leave the Bronx and come down to the city and go to the TV studios for tours and go to the museums and walk Central Park and Botanical Gardens and stuff. It's really where my curiosity was born. I also went away to the Fresh Air Fund for camp where I spent two weeks a month on a farm with another family over the summer. And I think that just kind of really allows a child growing up in the inner city a different perspective of what life could be or what else is going on outside of the confines of where they're being raised. I really appreciated the fact that my mom didn't dull me and she allowed me to be as expressive and as theatrical and dramatic as I was. She never said, like, speak when you're spoken to or hush and sit in the corner. She would let me sing and dance and dress up in the wildest outfits and be very worried when I went to school and something that was just way not appropriate, (laughs) come up with all kind of weirdness. And I studied theater. So when I was in high school, I was quite goth and quite, I went through a number of phases and she didn't fight me. She just said, this is just who she is. And every decision I made academically and professionally led me and molded me to the person that I was. And so I thank her a lot for not overproducing who I was born to be. Now that I have kids of my own, I try to give them a space to be themselves and express themselves and, and find their way. And I think that's important in growing up. So that's the kind of childhood I had. I was extremely loved. I never felt like I wanted for anything. And I think that's why when I'm feeling like I'm afraid to do something, I tap into that childlike sense memory of what would the 16-year-old June do or the 20-something-year-old June do. And it re- reminds me to, to be as fearless as I want to be. It's because of that fearlessness is why I was able to walk into any room and not be intimidated or ask the question and not be afraid to sound stupid, or take the risk and create the wildest costumes for music artists. They had no reason really to trust me at the time when I would present them. Getting the client to believe in me, leaving an investment banking job with security to go and take an internship. All of those really fearless and daring things are really because of the child that I was. It made me the adult that I am. Well, hold on there. You said something, investment banking job. You threw that in there really quickly. (laughs) Where does that fit in with this girl that that you were just describing who was into theater and goth? I know. It was a total left, right? Um, I was top of my senior class and they had this program with this firm where they were doing some placement and they had a position open in the research department and I decided to take the position. I wasn't interested in finance whatsoever. The position was paying very well right out of high school. I thought that was very fascinating. I had the choice to go to college and I had registered and had plans on going, but then I fell into this place and I was like, okay. I never questioned why things are happening. And in the two years that I was at the firm, I understood how important it is if you have an entrepreneurial spirit or if that is your destiny to be an entrepreneur, what you need to survive, 
what are the fundamentals? And I learned so much being there in the research department and prepared myself for if and ever I was no longer going to be working underneath a company that was going to provide me the security that I was then going to take on that, that responsibility of securing myself. So that's why I was there. I got in all kinds of trouble. I used to come to work with a plaid suit and my combat boots and, (laughs) 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 you know, cut my hair and uh, dye it four different colors. I would teeter on the appropriateness of the corporate look. I was the youngest one in the firm and all the brokers would come to my department to get research material. At the time, it wasn't available on the internet like it is now. So I was the librarian for all of that research material. I would prepare documents and get those all to them. And I was kind of like the girl Friday. But in, in being that, if you listen, if you become wallpaper and you consume and you understand and you make friends, they take care of you. And, you know, I made some friends and they made sure that I had a great 401k. They made sure that I had all the things that I needed to prepare myself for like 50 years from now. I had a nice portfolio and I understood why these things were important because when you're in fashion, it's really like a colorful place in the theater. It's like art, you know, struggling actors. You just think that's like your destiny in your life. And I left there knowing that I could have both, that if I kind of put certain things into position that I would be able to leave my $50,000 job a year and go and take an internship. This was back in 2000. I can go and take an internship at a record company. And leave everything. Oh, so you went to a record company, not fashion. I went to a record company, and that's how I found the music world and recognizing that there was this kind of white space in the artist development department, helping them to develop the artists and making them really appealing to the consumer. How do you do that? It's visual. And being in the marketing department, it really gave me a perspective of what came before consumer, you know, and that's an important part of the puzzle, understanding. Okay, before music hits the marketplace, this is what it goes through. Before fashion hits the retail space, I had to learn that because as I took on my first styling role, I couldn't afford to spend all of the money. At the time, the budgets were very small. It was a new concept. Artists used to dress themselves, but now here they are bringing someone to kind of help them to kind of tell the story and translate and figure it out for them. How was I going to make this lucrative? And I had to figure out, I can't spend all the money on buying clothes. I have to figure out where it, it comes from before and investigating that and understanding that and studying, then diving into costume design and the theory. I used to costume design in high school because I was a theater major. Whenever I, I didn't get the role in the part, I would costume design the piece, whether it was a period piece or whether it was like West Side Story or something very modern. I had developed that skill set. But I didn't recognize that skill set could also be used in a music space. I could use that skill set of storytelling and how costume designers in film approach putting a music video together or putting an album packaging together and advertising. And I merged those two um, skill sets into this space, into this world of music. And I found that that really helped me in my storytelling and the narrative and development of the artists that I had the opportunity to work with. Which label? It was Uptown MCA Records. Oh, Uptown. Okay. The uh, late Puffy's. Andre Harrell's record company. Right. Puffy was just coming out of his internship and Andre had given him an A&R position. I remember writing Puffy's first bio and always walking into his office and seeing these uh, European fashion collection magazines on his desk and really engaging with him that way. And I didn't work with Puffy right away as an artist. I ended up leaving the record company 
once I figured out like, oh, okay, I don't have to be here to start my own styling firm and company and start to offer this service to the artists outside of this place. Because as long as I stayed there, I was going to be the intern. But if I stepped outside of that environment, I knew I could then start to create my own company and packaging and, and what I had promised my mother that I would figure out very soon and quickly I was going to make some money. Well, she can't complain. Look at you. She you, was concerned. You already, you know, out of school, already had a nice paying job. You had your 401k. I did. I'm sure I it's did. really doing well today. You're probably <laughs> all set up. I'm very blessed. Very cool. Uh, a lot of your impact comes from videos, ultimately, right? You've done yeah. several hundred of those. Do you feel that still could work today for someone or videos have lost their ability to tell those stories in the same way? Well, it's interesting. There's a handful of really big musicians that are spending money on music videos still. And it's like a very small handful. It's changed tremendously, whereas music videos was the end-all, be-all to really marketing and selling the product. And now social media and technology, you can shoot a music video on your iPhone, you know, and a lot of indie bands are having a lot of success and not spending that much money. But in 2019, I did six music videos with Missy Elliott, but that's Missy Elliott bringing back an iconic artist to the marketplace. But imagine a costume designer or a stylist trying to start a really big, huge, powerful career through a music video at this with a new artist. It's it's not the same. My career in music and, and music video started when the budgets were small and then we blew the artists up to a really big place and then they could afford to spend a million, three million dollar music videos. I had done music videos that were $45,000 budgets to $3 million budgets. You could do a film for $3 million. Are people spending $3 million on music videos now? Very few. And they're selling them more like movie album packages, like a Beyonce, you know, they're doing those kind of packages. But again, very few in a league of their own. And those videos had this enormous influence, giving everyone out there license, hey, we can have fun also with fashion. We could wear suits. We don't have to be street all the time. We could have fun. We could storytell. We can change the narrative, you know, especially when you think about hip hop culture. They were able to really change the narrative through costume, through storytelling, through character development. And look at the music culture now. Because we did what we did in the early 2000s and 90s, there's the, his hip-hop culture. The expression is different. Europe is, has embraced them. Couture designers are creating one-of-a-kind couture pieces. They're sitting front row of fashion shows. They're walking the runway. They're in major million-dollar advertising campaigns because of the work that was done then, I believe. At the same time now, though, I noticed that there's a reverse influence with the return of the gangster look with guns and women playing these stereotypical parts mm -hmm. like 69 Takashi. And look at his style. So now you have, right. you know, facial tattoos and, and kids. Right. All it's rock and roll, right? Do you think that's going to influence fashion in the same way when you were involved in creating those looks? Yeah, I think street culture influences fashion. I don't care if you're a Michael Kors or if you're an urban Tommy Hilfiger brand or Ralph Lauren. There's something about street, the grittiness, no, you know, no matter what city you're from. There's something about the texture. I think the translation is different because of the swag of it all. But at the end of the day, you know, the swag is the persona, is the personality. And I think that helps with the translation. I think that 
most designers are influenced by street culture in some way and somehow, whether it's metropolitan or whether it's inner city, it's still street. Yeah, and if they don't, they're missing the boat because that's right. That's that's where the action is uh, right now. That's right. That's where the excitement is. Yeah, for sure. They're just doing it. They don't give a shit what other people are going to think. You know what I mean? No permission asked. Yeah, no permission. Just go for it. You mentioned Jay Z, I believe, or I'm going to mention. I mentioned Jay Z. <laughs> you have a longstanding <laughs> relationship with him, right? Yeah. With one of the world's biggest pop stars who famously said, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. Yeah, don't you love that line? <laughs> I do, I do. That's, I, you know, I, I keep repeating it to everyone. So tell us how you met Jay-Z and built a trust with him. Wow, we've worked together for over 25 years. I met him when he had his record label. So this was before he was an artist and he was starting a small independent record company. And Damon Dash, his partner at the time, I was working with his cousin and he said, oh, I have this, you know, this uh, great girl that's working with me with some of my artists. I think she can help you with some of your artists. And I went over to meet them and I started working and helping them develop their artists. And then Jay became an artist and I started working with him and his image and his storytelling. And we had been pretty much uh, inseparable since. He's just a great collaborative partner in that way because he respects the art form and he allows you to present your ideas. I think that kind of vulnerability really makes a good man, really makes a good artist. When you're able to render yourself in places that you feel, you know, I'm going to count on you for this. I got this covered. You got this covered. And then coming together in, in a mutual respect and collaborating was always how we work together. And I think that's super important. It must be difficult, I would think anyway, to work with someone whose image has evolved to such an extent from the guy in the streets and the hustler, the Brooklyn hustler who starts the label, becomes a huge pop star himself. Now he's in the boardroom billionaire, if you want to say that. If you did a movie, The Life of Jay-Z, you would have to like sort of have a different look for each one. I mean, well, we did a movie, right? If you look at the evolution of his character as an artist, it is somewhat cinematic, you know. Years ago, we had did a, a commercial and he was changing clothes into these different personas, the gangster, the, the hustler, that was all these different characters we were reenacting. And I made kind of like a Spike Lee guest appearance, you know, <laughs> in the commercial. And it wasn't difficult because it was somewhat a natural growth, right? We didn't abandon the culture. The culture grew with us. It grew with him. You know, when he first stepped outside of wearing a jersey and put on a button-down shirt and he still had baggy jeans on, but mixing, slowly evolving, you know, slowly. His first shoulder in a suit was very soft. I designed his first suit. It wasn't the Armani that I wanted because Armani didn't open the door right away, but we got there. You know, we had to slowly break down the stereotypes and the barriers and, and not wait for permission, but create our own lane. And that's what we did. We didn't let anything hold us back from getting to what we ultimately knew we were worthy of. And I say we a lot because in, together, I think we grew in this journey. And it was all about the storytelling, at least whenever we did the music videos, even when we were playing The Hustler, you were still dealing with a very intelligent individual and not allowing the circumstances to 
diminish his contribution. No matter how he was going about making a living, there was a certain sense of, like you said, executiveness, uh, street savvy and intelligence and smarts. He was a CEO long before he became a CEO. So I always kind of treated him that way and always approached things that way. But we also recognized that our audience was evolving and we wanted to grow the culture and we wanted to inspire the culture and that we didn't want to necessarily live in the moment, but we wanted to take it along with us. And you look at the culture, how it changed. He became kind of like the poster child and the sovereign of it all. He was like the king, you know, like everyone looked to him and young guys coming up looked to him for direction without even necessarily admitting it. You know, you started to see kids on the street look different and it raised the bar. And and that was always the goal. But you knew because you knew that a suit wouldn't be a problem, right? You you, you didn't feel like, nah, that's not going to be, that's not me. Well, it had to be the right suit because initially, you know, back then you only wore a suit really if you were going to a funeral because you weren't required to wear a suit in their boardroom. So it was about finding the right, like when I say Armani, it's an Italian soft shoulder. And also the jig's position of the body wasn't necessarily here initially. The shoulders weren't necessarily pulled back initially. And as confidence and growth and understanding of structure, and I'm speaking metaphorically now all around the board, literally and metaphorically, those shoulders became as strong as where we went with Tom Ford. So you go from a relaxed shoulder, you know, money, very leisure, going about your business very leisurely to getting really cocky about it and going for a really structured suit with strong shoulder because now your chest is completely puffed up and you feel the part because your character has developed into that person. It's funny because when you think about, let's say, a Mark Zuckerberg, you know, a lot of the fashion of the tech world of these young, very successful millionaires Mm -hmm. beyond millions sitting around in their hoodies, hardly ever thinking of putting on a suit. The cool thing is not to dress up in that way and make that statement because they want to be more like, yeah, this is really not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, those white guys, if you look at a young black kid, <laughs> okay, tell me. you look at a young black kid in a hoodie, you know, because of the, the stereotype in this country, you wouldn't get the same response or respect. So when you look at the black culture, you know, it was almost like the washing away of all of the stereotyping where if you have money, you wore a big chain, you wore a fancy car, you wore very flashy for a coat, just to wash off the stigma, to wash off this, you know, you can't wash your skin off, you know, and you, you, you basically are just really trying to earn the respect that a white person may get if they were in something what would seem to be normal because, you know, you just assume they would have money. A kid with a hood, he, you know, he's poor. He, you know, he's after something. He's scheming. He's up to something. These are all the stereotypes that the culture was trying to wash away. I don't think it would have been the same response if it was the other way around. Right. And I think that it is something to be said and talk about. Yeah, I think it's another aspect of white privilege in a way. Yeah. You can get away with it, but it probably wouldn't work as well on Jay-Z, for example, or even Puffy. Yeah. Now, Jay, you can walk into a meeting with a hoodie because, you know, he's washed away that stereotype. Right. Through a number of reasons and outlets and measures and, 
But initially, no, it's been a journey. It's taken a while. But Puffy, uh, Sean, uh, was into that very early, right? He embraced that whole style, like you were saying, the European fashion look for the black man. Mm-hmm. I remember when we worked with Puffy on a fashion rocks and I bought him a tray of Fred Lathan diamonds and a chinchilla fur coat, you know, really just elevating and raising the bar and luxury fashion and how that could be interpreted in hip hop culture was the beginning of something really big. It's funny. I'm just remembering now for a moment when I believe was Puffy's first fashion show that he attended to watch a show and he was with Monica Lynch Mm -hmm. Uh, from Tommy Boy. And I happened to be sitting right in front of her at that show. RuPaul was in the show as a model then. Oh, wow. Oh, I love Todd Oldham. Todd Oldham was one of the first designers to loan me clothes as a stylist for a music video. Everyone else was like, who, what? He had vision and he understood Black culture. And kudos to him, you know, for opening the doors and allowing us to use his stuff in music video. It really said a lot about who he was as a designer at the time. Cool. Because it wasn't what was norm. Yeah, I didn't know about that. I knew Todd quite well yeah. back in those days. Yeah, so that's great to hear. Yeah. You have this new role. So does that mean you're just doing exclusive Puma? Is that your full-time focus at this time? Well, it has consumed me as a creative director and, and launching collections. never easy. My phone still rings for creative costume design stuff, certain projects that are true and dear to me, I take on still. So yeah, I still wear many hats, but it's not exclusive, but it's definitely been my focus over the last year. And you were introduced to them by Jay, right? That was yeah. uh, help gave you the stamp of approval. Jay forged that relationship, absolutely. So what do they expect from you? What are they looking for you to do there? I was bought in for two reasons, really kind of bridged the gap between fashion and sportswear. And, you know, this is something that I did also in the early 2090s, bringing sportswear and making it luxury. When you think about what I did with Missy Elliott and leather jogging suits and Puffy and his whole bad boy company, just really taking that luxury fabric and creating sport athletic silhouettes was part of the storytelling. Now, in this particular space with Puma now, it's like, how do we get consumers to look at Puma in the fashion space? or in a leisure lifestyle space, not just athletic or performance, but wearing your Puma leggings or wearing your Puma sweatshirt is fashionable and cool and acceptable. First being I'm working with them and launching their first women's basketball collection. And also in taking on that role, it's allowed me to address certain social justice things that we're going to really try to tackle, female equality, how women in sports are treated so we're going to be able to tackle those conversations too. Gender neutrality, we're going to tackle all that. And also just creating another space, an opportunity for young designers, women, and definitely addressing of color and helping them to kind of uh, level the playing field where we're creating opportunity for them to at least be looked at and seen and considered is something that I'm taking on as well. Yeah, the women and in, in the WNBA are amazing but they're not really known enough i think and they could be right. great yeah. representatives for the story and they're also very progressive and in terms of social justice oh yeah in the last year yeah i think that they've used their voices you're right and the whole idea of title nine has been brought up again it's like you're funding and you're writing the law 
but you're not, the action isn't necessarily attached to that piece of paper. So we want to try to bring all that up again and hopefully make a difference. Are you sort of doing the opposite now in the sense of bringing sports to fashion as opposed to fashion to street? Exactly. Exactly. It's bridging performance with style. When you think about performance, most of the time you think about it just performance. It's black, it's blue. But like if you can infuse a performance with a little bit of design and color, I think that that's a little of a refreshing space. And I kind of looked at the first capsule collection to embody a little bit of that, where it's not over the top. It's just there and you can integrate it into your your lifestyle. I had Steve Smith on my show, the sneaker designer, works with Kanye now. Amazing. He's awesome. And one of the things he was saying, which reminded me of what you were saying, that his goal when he makes a shoe is that it's high performance first, you know, Mm because that's what the brand is. And then, you know, the design to go with it, to make it fabulous, but it has to have the high performance Well, I think people are focusing a lot on function and are investing more into technology, which is great. We have a lot of work to do, and it's been really exciting exploring this space with the brand. They've been super supportive, and I look forward to really taking our time and developing something that has a little bit of longevity and that will ultimately change the consumer perspective of the brand down the road. And being able to work with different divisions in the company, too, across the board. They have not tethered me to just working with women's basketball, that I'm able to work throughout the company in the women's space as a creative director. Yeah, I would hope so. When will we see some of this? This fall. So September, we'll start sharing stuff in September. First drop in October. Cool. Thank you. It's exciting. Uh, So nice talking with you today, June Ambrose. Thank you. It was. Thank you, David. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. <laughs>